we're, uh, we're yes, we're going to begin. Um, so thank you, everyone, for coming and joining us tonight. Um, one of the um, one of the first of a few Cornet events for this year, and, and a lot more to come uh, in person. So thank you all. My name is Margot Jaffa. Um, I am the Cornet Public Policy Chair, and I'm also a Regional Manager with All Steel. And uh, tonight we have an esteemed panel for you um, talking about very, very um, important issues that are affecting our CRE community at large. And um, before we get um, started, I'm going to give a brief intro on each of our speakers, uh, and then we'll have the panel discussion. Um, so joining us tonight, we have Stuart Brodsky from NYU Shack Real Estate um, and the center um, Sorry, I'm, I don't have your title here in front of me in terms of my notes. I, thank you, Center for Sustainability. Thank you, Brian, for saving me there. Uh, Stewart directs the development administration of the curriculum for green sustainable buildings at Shack Institutes for undergraduate and master programs in real estate development. As a director for the Center of Council for Sustainable for the Sustainable Built Environment, Professor Brodsky leads the center's strategic development, conference, and lecture planning. And prior to joining NYU um, Professional Studies Shack Institute, Brodsky was a senior member of GE's Capital Real Estate Global Sustainability Team, where he led the design and integration of sustainable practices for GE's 80 billion investment portfolio. Ryan Mallon is Vice President um, of Design and Construction for the Rockefeller Group, a seasoned licensed engineer with more than 25 years experience in engineering design. Mr. Mallon is responsible for reducing the carbon footprint of Car Rockefeller Group's core assets. In addition, he works closely with the design and construction teams on mechanical, electrical, plumbing, and engineering new projects, including the company's renovation of East Plaza at 1221 Avenue of the Americas. Prior to joining Rockefeller Group, Mr. Mallon served as the Connecticut Regional Partner in charge of AKF Group, one of the top engineering firms in the country. Molly D. Ramasamy, I um, hope I got that right, <laughs> uh, is the Director of Deep Carbon Reduction at JB&B. Um, Molly, <clears throat> Molly uh, leads a team focused on the decarbonation of large, complex buildings. Her experience includes um, energy and carbon reduction master planning, um, strategic electrification and decarbonization consulting, industry research, new and existing building commissioning, engineering studies, and special inspections. In addition to her work with JB&B, Molly is actively engaged in both city and state sustainability policy efforts and works alongside NYSERDA, uh, the NYC DOB, and the Mayor's Office of Sustainability, working through uh, different groups and advisory committees. Um, Philip Skolansky is the Vice President Engineering uh, and Energy Services at the Durst Organization. And thank you so much for being our venue host this evening. Glad to have you. <laughs> Phil is responsible for managing the uh, mechanical, electrical, plumbing systems for Durst organizations, recent development properties including EOS, Viva 57 West, Frank 57 West, and Hallett's Point. In addition, Phil supervises all MEP infrastructure upgrades to the existing buildings in the Durst portfolio to ensure best design practices as well as proper orientation to maximize energy efficiency. And our moderator this evening is Brian Schwegel. He is a clinical professor of real estate development at NYU Shack. 
uh, where he serves as the coordinator of undergraduate division, of the undergraduate division. Brian is an attorney with over two decades of experience working on land use, leasing, acquisition, and the disposition of property issues. He has worked as a senior corporate real estate executive in charge of design and construction projects at NBC Universal and Hearst, developing iconic global corporate headquarters for both firms. His many industry association memberships include the Global Association of Corporate Real Estate, Cornet, and the International Association of Facilities, IFMA, and the Building Owners Managers uh, Association, BOMA, and the Urban Land Institute, ULI. Thank you so much to our speakers this evening, and with that, I will turn it over to Brian. Thank you, Margo. Um, we're very excited about our panel tonight, and kudos to you for showing up today, because you're going to hear the cutting edge of energy technology today and what's happening in the field, because it's moving really fast, right? So we have buildings here that claim themselves to be green, buildings that are coming up that are going to be even greener, and then we have the push by industry and the SEC and the Biden administration as to what is an ESG building, what is environmentally, socially governed building. So uh, we're going to start right out with the smartest person in the room, and of course that's the woman who's on our panel today, <laughs> Molly, and she's gonna take us through some of the legislation that is taking place right now as we speak, both on the city, the state, and the federal level. So you've heard all about the infrastructure money that's coming down the pike, but also we have a governor that's running for re-election, and she wants to be the greenest governor possible. And one of the many platforms that our new mayor uh, stood on was the belief that we need to be a greener, better city. So let's see how we're going to fulfill that, because he has to deal with the city council, she has to deal with the legislature, and of course we know President Biden, who already got his infrastructure bill through, has had some difficult time with the Build Back Better. So where are we at in terms of current legislation, and what does that mean to us in New York City related to our portfolio that we cover? Molly? Great, thank you. Uh, I think I'll stay here. Yeah, to no, 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 that's, that's great. great. Okay, so we're gonna start the conversation off this evening with just three brief slides here, and it's gonna set the stage, I think, for the rest of our conversation, so I'll keep it pretty brief. Um, but to start out, let's talk a little bit about what's been happening in New York City in regards to building and climate-related policy. And so you see the timeline up on the screen here. And I think what's interesting about this timeline, of course, we're not going to spend time going through each of these bills, local laws, but you can see in the last five to seven years, right, there has been a substantial uptick in the policy requiring real estate to do something different, right? And it's not just real estate, it's also the people who are operating in the community, engineers like myself, uh, the construction community, the architecture community, across the board we're seeing this push from government to be greener and to do more on the sustainability front. And so this really came to a head in 2019 with the passage of the Climate Mobilization Act. It's the one listed in 2019 with you know, four or five different things underneath it. And believe it or not, that was actually a package of 10 different laws now, the ones I'm showing on the screens are the ones that are directly relevant to what we're going to be talking about today, and specifically Local Law 97, which is the city's carbon cap law. Um, but you can see there's just a ton going on here, right? And as if we didn't think it could get more difficult, more stringent, and that we couldn't be pushed further than Local Law 97, 
we now have Local Law 154, which is effectively a natural gas ban. So if we go to the next slide, I'm going to highlight those two specific laws, Local Law 97 and Local Law 154, just for anybody who may not be as familiar with these policies, so that when we start getting into the conversation, you know, we all have a baseline understanding of what's what. By the way, the professor in the room is going to administer an exam at the end, so <laughs> yeah. keep, 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 keep track with your notes. Keep going. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, so let's start with Local Law 97, right? Um, this has been in the media for some time now, made quite a splash in 2019 when it was first passed. Uh, but still, we're talking about it, and for good reason, right? This is a very um, difficult and sort of new kind of requirement that's being placed on buildings. And truly, New York City's on the cutting edge here. There are a couple other jurisdictions at this point that are doing something similar. Boston is a notable example. But we were the first to really pass a carbon cap law, carbon emissions law for existing buildings. And that's what Local Law 97 is. So what it does is it caps carbon for existing buildings 25,000 square feet or larger, uh, which is a majority of New York City buildings. Certainly, the people in this room are impacted by that. It takes effect in 2024 with first reporting in 2025. Now you think 2019 it came out, okay, 2024, it's not that, you know, it's kind of far away, right? Here we are, right? Three years of pandemic, it's 2022 and people are realizing, oh my gosh, we need to move fast because 2024 is gonna be here before we know it. Um, a notable component of the law is that these carbon caps for buildings become more stringent every five years. So there's this ratcheting down effect that means it's more and more difficult over time to achieve the desired goal. Now, why are we doing that? It's because New York City has an 80 by 50 requirement, 80% reduction in citywide greenhouse gas emissions by the year 2050. Buildings make up about 68% of that carbon profile for the city. So if we're gonna meet that 80 by 50, right, we need to move quickly and the reductions in the building sector need to be deep. That's why you get that ratcheting effect over time. Annual compliance will be required for building owners. And I'm sure we're gonna get into some of the nuances at some point in the discussion here about building owner versus tenant and how that works out, right? But building owners are required to report this data annually, similar to what's being done already with Local Law 84, which is benchmarking uh, required for energy and water data. Now, these last couple points here are the most important. The reason that Local Law 97 is really of, of any interest, I think, to anybody, um, is because it, it, it's a big stick, really, if we're being you know, objective about it here. It carries a financial penalty that's meaningful. Now, there have been other local laws in the past that you know, maybe a $3,000 to, $3, to $5,000 fine for not complying, right, or for missing your reporting requirement. But here, we're talking about much more substantial financial impacts when it comes to a building as an asset. And the penalty comes down to the actual emissions for that building, right? which per the law is defined as the utility consumption multiplied by some carbon coefficient, which is published by the law. And there's a different carbon coefficient for different fuels. We may get into that later on, I imagine, as well when we discuss here. Less your allowed emissions, right? that's your carbon cap. That's the number that you get to emit as a building, and that's based upon your occupancy types and the square footage of those occupancy types. There are specific limits defined in the law for how to calculate that. But we're talking about a $268 per ton penalty for every ton you're over your cap, right? And those numbers become large very quickly. I think on average in 2030, which is the second compliance period for Local Law 97, uh, it's about, on average, a dollar per square foot. Right? So if you think about some of the larger buildings in New York City, these are hefty penalties, and so they're, they're certainly meaningful. Last point here, it's been revised and amended a number of times. So if you're out there and you want to do some research, 
Local Law 97 published you know, on the internet will only get you so far. You're also going to need to look at Local Law 147, Local Law 95 of 2020, and these other, building, and these other requirements as well. So that is like the crash course on Local Law 97. Now let's do a quick crash course on 154, which is the natural gas ban. Now, interesting thing about this law, it doesn't come out and directly ban natural gas. You don't go in there, it doesn't say natural gas is banned, you can't use it. What it does is it puts a limit on the combustion and the emissions associated with combustion of different fuel sources. The number that's published, I think is 25. I think we have it up here somewhere. Yes, 25. Turns out natural gas is in the 50 range, right? Renewable natural gas is also higher. I think it's in the 42 range, and then fuel oil, forget about it. It's, it's way up there. Right? And there are different compliance or different periods in which this law is going to go into effect. Uh, for new construction, that's really what this is about, but there is a provision for gut renovations that trigger the requirements of new construction when filing with the DOB. Right? But you can see here from some of the bullet points that you know, if you're less than seven stories, there's a different date for you than if you're greater than seven stories, residential versus commercial. And so long story short, the point of both of these laws, right, is that the city is pushing building owners to electrify their buildings, right? First 97 said, well, you know, if you're, if you're using a lot of carbon, which is a result of combusting uh, in buildings, we're going to penalize you. Then 154 came in and said, you know, by 2027, you just can't build with these things, right, for new construction. And so the trajectory here is very clear for what this means for us as practitioners in the industry and for other people operating and if we go to the final slide, so we can actually get into the conversation here, um, it's also worth noting that this is not just a city initiative, right? The state has followed suit in many ways and has passed policy and legislation that supports the city goals, right? Usually the city and the state don't necessarily see eye to eye on things. Here there is consistency uh, across both governments. And I do think that's notable because it further kind of reinforces this idea. Um, that the next 10, 20 years are going to be very different in terms of how we approach engineering, right? In terms of, I think, how real estate thinks about new assets and, and what they're planning to do with existing assets. So yeah, really so I think that's the most important point that she just said. Can you repeat it one more time? Sure, I think the we're next... In a, we're in an age of transformation. Yep. You're sitting here with the latest knowledge, and by the way, didn't Molly do a fantastic job? Thanks. So... Um, Molly, this is the time to make a difference. Are you optimistic that we'll be able to do it? Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely the time to make a difference. You know, I think the retrofit market is very difficult. And I think we're still in a period of kind of figuring out what makes sense and how to decarbonize challenging and complex existing buildings. But I think new construction is a foregone conclusion. And I, I don't even think that, you know, natural gas bans uh, would be needed to convince real estate developers that are looking at new assets and building fresh and new to consider electrification very seriously. By the way, as trying to teach young people, both in undergraduate and graduate profession, this is a growth area, right? This is all brand new. And all of these young individuals entering into the job market really have to know this. So curriculums across the board are changing with regard to this. And why Cornet is doing this now is to empower you to come back to your friends, clients, user groups, and explain to them how you might be able to make this achievable for someone. Molly, you're going to make your slides available to everyone? Sure. Okay. So why don't you give them your email address right now, just so they have it? <laughs> Maybe we'll circle back with that. <laughs> okay. All right. So. Um, 
Are you as optimistic as Molly is, Stuart? about what specifically? About these laws and what will take place and whether they were put in, in the right place at the I right see. time uh, yeah. to achieve no, what No, I it think these laws are, are pretty close to meaningless and won't motivate most property owners. Oh, my to God. Do very what much. did he just say? Wait, repeat it again. I, I, I think they all heard me. Um, uh, meaningless I, is I, what I heard. I did an analysis of Volcondo buildings in New York City and the impacts of a local law. Um, 94, 97, 97. And um, in 2025, the average, the average condo building in New York City will encounter a fine of three cents per square foot per year, or three, three cents per square foot per month on their condo fee to respond to the fines. Um, these are these are condos which, if you you know you think about the average two bedroom condo being 1,200 square feet of space and sells for seven eight hundred thousand dollars I think most most occupants and most tenants most tenants most occupants most owners um, and their condo associations will not find the the head of steam they need to invest in energy efficiency uh, in order to avoid a three cent per square foot fine um, I see the same and similar data related to office buildings I think that for 2030 as Molly says, We've got uh, potentially buildings that are going to be going to encounter a fine of a dollar per square foot. Well, we're talking buildings that are getting eighty dollars per square foot in rent, and you can't tell me that between now and twenty thirty, most of the landlords in New York City can't figure out how to push that dollar onto the tenant. All right, good point. I'm going to stop you for a second because I know we can come back to you. But let's talk to the landlords. Okay. Are you going to push it down? What do you What do you say, Mr. Durst? What do you say, Mr. Rockefeller? Um, I'd like to be optimistic, but as an engineer, I'm usually more pessimistic. Um, there's, there's problems with this law, and I know we'll get into some of the problems in a minute, but you know, Molly discussed everything about the building owners. Well, what about the grid? Where's the grid in this? It doesn't matter how, we could use half the energy we use in these buildings right now, and if the grid doesn't green, we're still gonna pay a fine. All right, what about the steam system? No one's talking about the steam system. You know how many buildings are on, on Con Ed's steam system right now? Con Ed did just release a, a long-term plan that did talk about greening their steam system. Well, great, so why do I have to electrify a building when I have steam as my source of energy for cooling and heating? Especially a lot of our older east side buildings use steam turbines for chilling and for heating. So um, there's that. There is also the fact that, again, you're not looking at the source of energy from a carbon standpoint. Um, you know, we need the electric grid to upgrade. We are hearing a lot of stuff about the goals and the state goals and, you know, the CLCPA and when we're going to have wind, offshore wind and lines coming down from, you know, from Champlain Hudson, from, uh, from uh, Hydro-Quebec, and I haven't seen any of it yet. Where is it? So again, yes, we understand there's a goal, but what happens if the state doesn't meet those goals? What happens if, we're, if we electrify today or tomorrow? We actually will emit more carbon than we do right now, burning gas. Because again, the grid is sourced right now by mainly fossil fuels. Yes, there is a component of it that's uh, hydro and a component that's renewable, but those are smaller components. So again, these are all things that need to be looked at. And also, efficiency. By the way, in those laws, there's not one word. If you do a word search on those laws, there's nothing that talks about efficiency. Nobody cares about efficiency. They care about, again, these laws are energy reduction laws. They say that we have to use less energy. 
well, how do we do that in a building like this or in a building like One Bryant Park where we have a high-intensity user like the bank who has to perform a function? Well, we just kick them out. Go away. Pay the rent, but go away. Yeah. You can't say that so to the, a So the bank is 24-7, and they have trading floors, which is a, a huge component for New York City's economy, right? So it's not just the Bank of America. It's every bank and every financial firm across New York City. It's a driving force of economic development within New York City. Hudson Yards is full of them, Manhattan West, downtown Manhattan. Yeah. And here... I'm going to give you five seconds to tout some of the green aspects that you've been able to incorporate that don't get enough credit within this building and the building next door. Well, again, this, this building, we just replaced the uh, heating and cooling plant back in 2018. We have multi-stack uh, chillers, electric drive chillers. It is an electric drive plant. We have high-efficiency gas-fired boilers. You know, you know, we can't burn gas anymore. It's really, really bad. But again, these boilers run at 80, uh, 95% or 98% efficiency because of the way we optimize the heating systems, the actual end-use devices like the FinTube radiation, like the, uh, the coils and the air handlers. They're made so that we could run this building at very low temperature hot water. Again, this building could be converted in the future to electric when it makes sense. But also, finding room for heat pumps may not work. So maybe electric boilers are the way, but they're not very efficient from an electric standpoint. So we need the grid to be green in order to do that. Um, so there's a, again, there's a lot of things that we've done in this building in terms of upgrades. One Bryant Park has a thermal storage plant. Right now, under the law, that's a penalty. Why? Because the law only has one carbon factor for all hours all day. So the way the storage, the energy storage system works is we charge it at night when carbon is actually low, and we discharge it during the day to actually cool the building. So we basically make ice at night with a chiller, and then we discharge it during the day. There's a huge carbon benefit there, but the law doesn't take that into account because right now there's only one carbon factor for all hours all day throughout the year, which doesn't make any sense. So again, there's a lot of problems with the law. We know there's a rulemaking process underway right now. I was, I was on one of the working groups for the rulemaking process because, again, you got to be at the table to try to affect some change. Yeah, important, and, and that's um, a good point. Are, are you also at the table in, with the Rockefeller Group? Um, we are at, and I'm not at the, uh, the table for the, uh, uh, the committee. All right, so we'll go back to the table in a minute, yes. which, which, which is the mayor's <laughs> initiative. Tell us how the Rockefeller Group is adjusting this, because you've looked at your Sixth Avenue portfolio, right? Mm -hmm. People are questioning whether Midtown is now going to be abandoned, yes. right, to all these new developments that we have. How are you retrofitting your towers, and are the tenants that you're renting to are they interested in energy efficiency or are concerned? Is it sustainability, what the demographic is looking for, for the person that they want to hire for the future to motivate well, their workforce of tomorrow? I would certainly say sustainability is the focal point uh, for some of the, the high So you're Mr. Sustainability for the Rockefeller Group, right? <laughs> yes, of course. All right, so <laughs> you've got that moniker. How do you represent yourself then? <laughs> <laughs> so we were we were fortunate enough to have an opportunity to repurpose twelve seventy one Avenue of Americans. A, a big repurpose after twelve million life, square feet. You know, the, uh, we no longer read magazines, so therefore yes. time life is time and life out of existence. The or there. <laughs> and uh, we, we were able to uh, retrofit the building, reskin the building, change out the facade. Uh, change the infrastructure. The okay, so I'm going to break this down because you're an engineer. You know what that means. But when you reskin a building and change the facade, 
Tell us that, what that means from an energy standpoint, let alone all the natural light that might be coming in, and the change of the look of the building. So changing the facade takes single-pane glass, changing the windows to more efficient, double-paned, inert gas inside the, gas, uh, inside the windows. Better insulation. We did not have insulation previously. It, it, in 1950s, it, it wasn't a, a focal point. And we were able to achieve 28% energy savings from the time that we began the project to the time that we fully occupied. We're 100% occupied in our buildings. And the, the main driver for coming into this was the efficiency, the efficiency of a retrofitted building. Yeah, so what people don't realize is that technology has changed. That type of window system didn't exist before. The focus on energy efficiency and what it means to the tenant as well as the landlord mm -hmm. is now, let alone our audience, is something that people focus on. But the good landlords take advantage of it, right? Yes, I, I would say Class A facilities are in a good place yeah. with the efficiency you're not gonna exist. and the operation of the yeah. building. But, but, but they're, they're, they're in a good place because they're Class A facilities. It's not because they, they said, oh, no, my building is going to have a fine. I better, make, I better rip off my skin and make a new skin. We're, in, we're also in a good place if the building was built in the 60s with single-pane glass because, again, we had a lot of buildings on the east side that we did also do the same thing. We retrofitted to double-pane we put in view glass, which is the, the chromatic uh, changing glass, which is great. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. But again, it makes sense because you're going from single pane to double pane, and you're also on like a window wall system so you can insulate, mm -hmm. and you get a much better R value on, on the opaque side of things where it's not vision glass. So Ryan, I often tell uh, architects as well as engineers to stop and not speak in architect speak or engineering speak, right? So Sorry. because you have to break it down into plain language. Now you're on this working group. I know you can't reveal the secret details of the behind this, the you know scene uh, negotiations that are going on. But I know you're also optimistic that the mayor is hopefully listening to you. He seems to be responsive to the real estate board, who's advocating that this may be too soon, too fast but we understand where you're going. How would you describe the next steps that might be coming down the pike? And by the way, full disclosure, we tried repeatedly to get someone from the city and, the, and from uh, the mayor's office to join us, uh, but I have a feeling they're gonna make an announcement in the next month or two that uh, prevented them from uh, revealing what was going on today. So again, the working groups work on certain aspects of the law and report up to an advisory board. So in the law, there was an advisory board with eight folks selected from the mayor's office of sustainability, eight folks selected from uh, city council. And that advisory board advises DOB, and DOB is actually the one that actually makes the rules. Now, there are certain rulemaking process under that law that they can make rules on, and then there are certain things that they can't override. There are certain things that are just in the law, and the only way to change the law is to go back to city council. What we're hearing right now and what was uh, publicly made publicly available through a hearing, a recent hearing that took place uh, at City Council, was that the rulemaking process will go forward. There will be hopefully some good changes to the law, again, time of day carbon, things some like things that. Some things that are realistic Some things in that their make approach. a lot of sense. Okay. Um, the changes to the law, because again, in order to like change carbon factors for like a commercial office building, mm -hmm. because there are different types of commercial office buildings, like a very densely occupied one Bryant Park versus a standard commercial office building that might 
house like law firms or something a little less densely occupied. To get that changed, you'd have to go back to city council. There would have to be another uh, passing of a bill or another amendment, which could be possible, but could we're be possible, probably but we're not, looking at not a much, happening right well, now. We're looking at a much more progressive city council than existed in the past, which seems to have an even greater focus on green, green, green. Which could go the opposite way, and there's yeah. always that. So and it was, again, we go to Stewart. It was the city council, not de Blasio, who passed the Climate Mobilization Act. Is that right? That is de Blasio right. never touched it. He let it become law. It was the city council that. That's good. I'm glad you're setting it straight, Stewart. With. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> it was council, council Molly has something to add. This was the yeah. was the sponsor of the bill. Molly, jump in quick. Yeah, I, I'd like to respond to a couple of things here. Um, I haven't heard anything yet that I've disagreed with. I want to start by saying that, right? I think you're absolutely right, Stuart, that penalties alone aren't moving the needle very much. It's true, right? The rents that real estate owners are getting are significantly more than penalties. And yes, I've seen plenty of lease agreements recently that are going to find ways to push those penalties through. What I will say, however, is that high sort of you know, commercialized tenants are asking for this, right? So while the penalty might not you know, give somebody the push they need to undertake a retrofit project. The fact that corporate tenants have ESG goals that need to align with the buildings uh, that they occupy very, and certainly so will. Let's repeat that one more time for the audience because I think that's a key component. Yes. The fact so that listen they're... to what she's saying. And this is, <laughs> well, is going to make you yeah. much well. brighter than the average person. <laughs> Try it one more time. Do you want to take a seat? Yes, cor corporate tenants. And, and again, this is a good point that we're talking about class A you know, commercial real estate here. There is still absolutely a problem with you know, people who aren't as well resourced and the condo Yes, 100% agree that you know we've got work to do there. But when we're talking about Class A commercial, corporate tenants have ESG goals, and they're looking for space that align with those goals. And so I think that's very important. The other thing I would say is that depending on you know whatever the ownership structure is for an asset, right? If you're you know private equity real estate and you're planning on selling an asset, right, and you're looking out 10 years, and the next guy is going to have to do all that work or gal. Right, that could also be something that financially motivates you to undertake projects that weren't originally planned. And there are going to be jobs associated with this. A yes. lot of jobs are going to be needed for people to undertake this next round. But I want to go back to uh, Stuart now to kind of follow up on what she said. You've just introduced, or about to introduce, it was accepted by New York State and, and the provost of NYU, a whole ESG curriculum around what we're talking about today, and probably some of the people in the audience, even though they're exceptionally bright, never heard of ESG. So could you give us a little primer on that? <laughs> well, um, yeah, so ESG stands for Environmental Social Governance, and it's those are three adjectives that, that um, pertain to practices of corporations, um, where corporations are under the gun from their customers, such as their tenants, uh, such as their investors, uh, particularly institutional investors such as large pension funds, particularly European pension funds, and publicly and public employee retirement systems and labor union retirement systems, who are saying um, we want companies that we invest in uh, to make a lot of money, but we want them to be good stewards to the community, and we want them to be transparent on their governance practices so that we can we can uh, anticipate how fair they are. Uh, regarding issues, for instance, of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this is going to become um, the umbrella conversation under which ES, under which the environmental issue, sustainability, um, is going to reside for the next several years, I believe. 
So Ryan, Mr. Sustainability, <laughs> how do you approach that going forward? You're a private company, right? Mm -hmm. You're not publicly listed, but you're competing against German investors, Korean investors, mm -hmm. um, all sorts of European investors that are out in the market, and their shareholders, let alone the United States SEC, is now looking as to whether there's some greenwashing, this ability to say that they're green when they're really not green. Um, how are you adjusting to that? So we have, and uh, our members file for GRES, uh, which so is... explain that, break it down. GRES, actually what GRES stands for... Global uh, Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark. Thank you. You're welcome. Mm. <laughs> uh, so, so, so this is a internationally, correct, mm -hmm. uh, recognized group that measures uh, real estate portfolios and how they uh, own up to their ESG, uh, making sure that they have these policies in place. And um, it is an annual exercise that uh, we go forward with, uh, fill out a lot of paperwork, a lot of policies, make sure we have all the policies in place and present that, and uh, we are benchmarked against our peers. And in doing so, some of that part's getting back to some of the tenants and the tenants that are focused on the ESG. We are meeting with them, educating them, and speaking to them how we are trying to pursue and uh, align our ESG goals between us as a landlord developer and them as a tenant and uh, aligning ourselves with tenants that have the same beliefs and same goals. So I see there we have a few brokers in the audience, some very prominent. Um, their clients are actually seeking out more sustainable buildings. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So how do you compete? How do we compete with this? Well, one, we, um, well, with Gresp is, is one benchmark for our competition. But is that uh, just you're buying your way out of something? Not no. at all. Well, so I mean, Stuart we, says we are no. not buying. No, you're not buying. Not at all. all. There, there, there is work involved in their policies and their policies that are bought into the C-suite of the institution and, and of, the, uh, um, uh, of the firm. Yeah. And, uh, and it really starts to steer the ship of these, uh, the, these companies and institutions so that uh, the, their, their habits and culture are shifting. Yeah, I, I think there's a whole cultural shift that's happening there, and I think post-pandemic there's an understanding of what's needed. And, um, and then when you look at the office of the future and trying to get people back to the office of the future, sustainability is one of the top five, if not the top three, that their younger generation who they're trying to retain and attract in the office place is, is looking for. So um, I want to ask Phil, I'm going to give you another chance, tell us a little <laughs> bit about some of the innovative things that you're doing. You know, some of the things that others should be looking at and saying, wow, that's interesting. If they can do it, I should be able to do it. Why aren't I doing that or why can't I do something better? So you've been heating with ice Forever. Well, we're in the modern world. So tell me a little bit about how you use. <laughs> well, hold on. How do you how do you go about no, using that? Well, no, we're cooling with ice, right. right? And again, we're making. But again, that's one type of system. You know, Durst has been at the forefront of sustainability for a very, very long time. We've always said, you know, leave this place better than we found it. Right? That's our motto. So. Um, we've always looked at 
the way to make smart decisions for energy efficiency. How can we be as efficient as possible? How can we use energy to the best of our ability? Um, again, when we size our chiller plants, we're looking at how those systems turn down. How can they modulate? How are we not spending you know, extra energy on running stuff in a redundant manner? How do we make sure our control systems are working perfectly so that we're using the least amount of energy? How do we make sure we size our equipment properly with, at the proper temperatures so we're not using more energy than we need? So um, you, those are kind you of, were yeah, one those, of the innovators in that area at a time when it was hard to find products that you could buy that would be in that arena. Now there's a lot of innovation moving forward, but still that idea of do we invest in it? Is it going to work? And what is the payoff associated with it? Again, we, we've invested in a lot of different types of technology. Again, view glass is one of them. Again, having these things pay back on energy, not, not great. I mean, they, they, do, they do save energy, but again, it, it doesn't always meet the economic benchmark. But we still do. So Molly, should the city, the state, uh, the federal government incentivize these things? Talk a little bit about NYSERDA. I was able to use NYSERDA when I built the Green Tower when no one said, we don't do LEED, right? Now LEED is almost outdated, right? Everybody's doing LEED. If you don't have a brand new building mm -hmm. that's LEED associated, you know, what good are you? But anyway, yeah. tell, us, tell us a little bit about incentives and what should we be looking at in terms of innovation? Yeah, I, I think um, that incentive programs early on in the development of solutions for building decarbonization electrification should be incentivized, but I emphasize in the early phases, right? We need to incentivize early adopters to take on the risk of new technology because there is absolutely risk there. And to Phil's point, a lot of the time this stuff doesn't pay back, right? It's a leap of faith. And so I think it's very easy to look at the financials and say, you know what, I'd rather not. It's not a great bet for me right now. And so I think that's where government steps in and incentive programs, either from the utilities or from entities like NYSERDA, can come in and kind of ease the burden for those early adopters. I do think, however, that once you get to a certain point, right, where the market has been developed, right, and these um, you know, new technologies, heat pumps specifically, are, are working for real estate better, that those incentives likely should and will go away, right? Because the hope is that the market will develop to a point that we don't need them. Um, but I still think we're in those early phases, right? So yeah, I, I do think that those things should be incentivized uh, to give real estate folks the, the extra confidence they need to proceed. And just Stuart, you one, were one of the one, very, one. let me just ask I'm Stuart sorry. a question. Sorry. You were one of the very early innovators in terms of rating systems for the federal government in energy efficiency, right? But at the same time, you see the race towards lead as sort of misleading in some ways, right? Yes, well, I do. I think, well, lead is kind of like a broad spectrum antibiotic. <laughs> it addresses a whole range. Of, Write that down. That was a good issues. quote. Thank you. It's a good one to get. Um, but, but we have a climate crisis on our hands, and it is a real crisis. Um, and it's, and, and, you know, so, so it's, under the conversation of broad spectrum antibiotic, we're having a heart attack. That's the climate crisis. Mm. And um, when you're having a heart attack, you're having a coronary, you don't take a broad spectrum antibiotic. Not that you might not have an infection, which would be therefore a good idea to take an antibiotic, but it's, it's, not, your core, it's not your core challenge. Um, so, so LEAD has become more rigorous on energy efficiency than it used to be. 
Um, it used to be that you didn't even have to commission your buildings, and now you do have to commission your buildings. And you have to demonstrate your performance, not just say that you're going to be a good building. Um, and that's the start of the conversation. We now have green building standards that far surpass LEED and focus on net zero energy and net zero carbon, um, which are achieved through renewable energy as well as significant efforts for energy efficiency. So there's a dual, dual path there. So, Ryan, as well as being a uh, real estate owner, prominent real estate owner here and elsewhere, you are a developer. So, as you develop for future properties moving forward, what do you focus on? What do you buy? What do you incentivize? Where do you go when you're looking at that spectrum of tomorrow? Well, I, I could talk to what we are, are certainly doing in New York. And in New York, um, with the framework of this particular local law in 97, as well as the, the gas ban, we're certainly changing the, uh, the, the design with our consultants and changing the focal point and um, really taking, I think, a bit of the gamble that uh, the, the grid will green and uh, that the city and state will meet their commitments or come close to them. So focusing on less fossil fuels and uh, electrification as the, uh, the, the main focal point. And electrification, we've been tossing that term around, but, but it's effectively providing the building uh, without fossil fuels, without steam, uh, and focusing on uh, the building MEP systems with electricity. Yeah. So Phil, you had some comments to say about that in terms of the line coming down with a huge resource that we have in New York State, Niagara Falls, right? But the, the, the amount of water energy that can trans, be transported is limited by the lines and the construction of those lines that take a while to go forward. The same is true for the wind that we've invested very heavily in in New York State now, uh, out on Long Island, uh, again, new jobs, uh, a whole new way of energy, but that energy's not happening right away. So um, I'm optimistic. I think it will be at some point there. It takes a while to get there. But what do we do in the interim? Well, that's, again, that's one of the big problems. We, we are looking at, again, we have certain buildings in the hopper that were already designed and being bought at, you know, in the past two years. <clears throat> And that we're actually buying now, that one of which does still use fossil fuels. But we are looking, we did look at how do we make these buildings electric ready? And that's one of the big things that a lot of folks are talking about. How do you make it electric ready? Meaning, what kind of systems, what kind of shaft space do we need? What kind of roof space do we need? How could we, when the grid becomes green, convert it easily? How do we make sure we're, we're sizing the systems properly to do that? Um, that's a very important part. I think, again, going back to one of the things that Molly was talking about, about the early adopters. Big, another big problem with the law is it does not give a kind of a, a relief to the early adopters. So, okay, so now I'm an early adopter. Say I electrify a building, and the grid doesn't become green, and the grid and the carbon stays the same. What happens? I'm going to actually use more energy under electric, that, that more carbon, bigger fine. Is anybody going to give me a, a relief because I'm a fully electric, there should be an exception in the law that says, if you're fully electrified, you will not pay a fine. But they can't do that because how electric, then I could just put electric boilers in. They don't have to be heat pumps. They don't have to be more efficient. They could just be electric. I think electric that's part of our education that we need to always put the message out there. There's a variety of 
ways that we can achieve what it is that we're looking at. It's not just one avenue. Um, I, I was going to say, I mean, there, there's certainly always a way to game a system. And uh, this law is not perfect by any means, and there is a lot of work. But LEAD, when it first came out, there were a lot of people challenging LEAD. And uh, Stuart, as you pointed out, LEAD has morphed and changed into something a little more progressive uh, and uh, bigger focus on uh, the energy rather than putting a bike rack in. And uh, th this, the reason we're sitting here today is because of this local law. And we're having the conversation and we're talking about what we can do and how we can change it. So it is certainly making an impact. It All right. Well, now you, you had the softball questions. Now we're going to go to the hardball <laughs> questions. Are you ready? Buckle in. I Buckle am. in, Molly. <laughs> okay. We're going to start with the gentleman over here in the front row. Do you want to have a question for us? <laughs> Announce where you're from so that people, this is a networking event as well. I didn't have a question, but I will, uh, I will make one up. <laughs> Turn on uh, your mic. You do now. <laughs> so, Thomas, uh, I'm with the Switch Sustainability Consulting Firm. Um, work a lot with tenants uh, and sometimes even on finding sustainable spaces to be in. So, I was very interested in the point that we were hearing some, well, a lot of discussion about the compliance side these, you know, rules and regulations driving a necessity to be sustainable. But you also mentioned the market side, uh, mm -hmm. which often gets a lot more fun, right? It's more interesting to talk about the upside of a business than, than uh, reducing the downside. So what kind of conversations are you having with the tenants? Good question. Let's ask our landlords first of all. So I'll, I'll start with... Um, one, as I was mentioning before, um, educating them, meeting with them, and, uh, and talking with them about um, what we're doing, what we're finding, and what is happening with Local Law 97, and uh, what, what the potential impact may be. Uh, we're also talking about the partnership between our operation and the tenants. It's roughly most buildings, about 50% of the energy use is coming from the tenants. Uh, and uh, the, the, the current law prevents you from just passing on the penalties to them uh, with existing leases. Now, there, there are, as, as leases change, um, the, the leases will become more sophisticated on both ends, from the tenant side and the landlord side, to adopt this. And uh, some of the things is we're, we're coming up to potential fines in, uh, we're fortunate enough not to be in that situation for 2024, but in 2030, <laughs> Uh, allowing carbon allowances for the tenants for how they may be, uh, where they will be uh, as far as their operation. Because tenant uses, as Phil had mentioned, uh, impact a, a more um, energy-intense operation uh, is going to have a bigger operation. So they may have uh, a larger allowance, but we can account for that. Uh, and then there may be some cost-sharing uh, if there are penalties. So it's interesting, though, but you're saying that a lot of the challenge is actually with bringing the tenants on board your initiatives. But what about the other way? Are you also getting any questions from tenants that are actually challenging? Absolutely. To, yes, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'll talk about so most of our, all of our buildings, except for one Bryant Park, will not receive a fine in 2024. And so for those buildings... I, at least to the end of this year, we'll wait till the rulemaking process is complete, and we're going to reevaluate those buildings, see where we stand. 
We're also looking to see what happens with Con Ed's team. Again, Con Ed makes some statements. We're not sure where they're gonna go. We'd love to see a real plan. So that's for that. One Brian Park, obviously, is the most. You've seen a lot of articles out there. You've seen a lot of statements by my ownership about you know, the law, and One Brian Park will be fined about $2.4 million come 2024. We have been, I mean, I've, I have meetings probably bi-weekly with the bank, you know, heads of real estate, um, we explain to them the law. We explain to them the process in terms of, you know, the rulemaking process. We've also explained to them that we are looking at the numbers based on what we think might change in the law to see where we really will fall. Right now, under the current law, it's 2.4 million. But if we get time of day carbon, again, the building uses a lot of off-peak energy, so this might change things. Okay, so we'll look at that. We'll reevaluate. We're going to get to a point where we probably still will have a fine. Maybe it'll be something less than two million dollars. Probably won't be under one million dollars. We, right now, of course, we buy 100% wind energy for all of our properties, but that doesn't count under Local Law 97 because it's not sourced directly into the five boroughs. So we're, and we're also looking at and more energy storage. So again, battery storage. Fire department has a problem with that right now, but hopefully if the fire department can get past that, we can put in some large systems in one Bryant Park of energy storage, and again, try to offset that off-peak to on-peak. We've done a lot of studies with NYSERDA. We were part of the Empire Building Challenge. We were part of the... Uh, the new the Empire Carbon Playbook that was just announced at the Empire State Building last Thursday. Um, we've studied every possible ECM with the help of JBMB at One Bryant Park. Everything from reskinning the entire building. ECM, ECM sorry, energy conservation measure. So energy conservation measure could be any upgrade. So even to ripping down the entire facade of the building and redoing it with a, a triple pane glass. Electrifying the building. The electrifying What's of that building. On that, Phil? Uh, over 200 years on the reskinning of the building on an energy efficiency because it, you don't gain that much going from double pane to triple pane. Not to mention the cost is is immensely excessive in an, an occupied building. Um, we looked at converting the building to elect to electri you know electrifying the building with heat pumps. First of all, feasibility wise, I don't even know if we have enough space for the heat pumps. We'd have to construct like another seven-story building on the podium next between this building and one Bryant Park, which I don't even think zoning would allow us to do. But even if they did allow us to do it, and we could do it feasibly, that has no payback because the cost of electricity is more expensive than the cost of gas, which we use right now to make our to use our to use in our cogen plant, which we produce almost half the energy. Much more efficient, by the way, than the grid can uh, produce that energy. Um, so again, we're using more energy. It would be more. Uh, costly from an operating expense, it was over $120 million, $114 million to electrify that building with no payback. All right, we so, have a question in the back of the room. Hi, great uh, job up there, all of you. <clears throat> Two questions, I actually have more, but for the wonks, what regulations or what would you like to see that might help impact this process and make it really go forward in a more effective way? And for the owners, uh, Wonder what your best. Wait, I'm a wonk. I, I know you're a professor, you're you're an investor, you're you're everything. I'm just you're using that uh, for the for the owners. What you think was your best and your worst efficiency project, if you can remember? Them. Well, the the what I would like what I would like to see is the is the law recognize uh, in a better way, in a very robust way, that some buildings are more densely occupied and operated than others. 
Right now, you can have a building full of lawyers, which is evaluated. Sorry, I don't know. That's scary to some people. Um, <laughs> um, you can have a building full of lawyers, which occupy 400, 500 square feet per person. Um, and you can have a building full of IT and banking and banking folks that have that have tremendous computer density, and they they both have the same carbon cap. That's ridiculous. Um, we have to operate our buildings to do what they're being asked to do, which is house business activity. So that's what I would like to see change in the law. Good answer. We have two more questions on this side, and then I want this side to come up with a few. All right, come on. Hi. Um, Chris Cadwell, I'm with Wavelength Lighting. This is my first Cornet event. Great. I hope you like it. Come back. back. I'll be back. This is great. Thank you all. (laughs) I hope the applause was for for you guys. Um, The the question I have is about Local Law 88, which was, I think, in the haystack of of the Mm -hmm. earlier slide of all the the local laws. And Mm -hmm. I'm a a lighting retrofit service provider so that's it's it's near and dear to my heart um and what the what the law does is it requires spaces to um lower the lighting density of spaces it requires the sub metering of floors and it requires uh controls to limit light near windows and limit light in unoccupied spaces so Uh, Lighting is really the low-hanging fruit in a lot of these buildings. It does have a really fast payback. Um, And this law does seem well-designed to, you know, implement efficiency in a way that works for everybody. But there are no fines, and most people haven't heard of it. So um, is that a good way to implement efficiency? Um, Are you guys taking it seriously? What... um, What's the deal with Local Law 88? Uh, wow, would, you thought I was tough. I, I, w- I would say, for the, for the most part, most of our spaces are LEDs by now. Um, we did, As are ours. We did work with the tenants for a tenant offering where we actually surveyed many of the tenant spaces, and we put together like a turnkey proposal to them to say, hey, if you, you sign this, we, we'll have someone do the retrofit for you, uh, get the incentives for you, take on the incentive so there's no money out of pocket for the incentive piece of it, kind of apply it for them and put the credit, you know, put the credit on the contractor. And all you have to do, if you're a sub-metered tenant, you're going to get this payback. Most of them are like two or three-year paybacks. They were excellent. And yeah, the project you know, pays for itself. It does. And, and, and we got a lot of tenants to jump on board with that. Obviously, any tenants moving in now, it's all, it's all based on energy code and all that stuff is already included in the energy code. Um, but again, retrofitting existing properties, for the most part, I mean, all of our back of house spaces were retrofitted. Uh, all of the, the engine rooms, uh, even, even engine rooms where we used to not put occupancy sensors in because it was dangerous. You know, now we put them in, we leave maybe one light on or something so that, you know, nobody gets caught in the dark or something like that. But, you know, even that has been kind of relaxed a little bit uh, from an operator standpoint. So for the most part, that's been done. Mark, I saw you had a question. What's your question? Yeah, Mark from HDR. Um, actually, this is a question for Molly. Um, you had mentioned earlier about the ESG initiatives. Um, I realize many larger companies have ESG initiatives, but uh, who might occupy, say, a Class A building. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of Class B, Class C building stock in New York City. How do you see those buildings complying with local law uh, 97, 2019, are they just going to ride the wave out with respect to the... It's an excellent question. Why don't we have Molly answer that one? Yeah, yeah I think 
so, with respect to the fines, or you think they're going to increase the $268 per equivalent ton hour equivalent? What, I mean, what's, 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 what's the avenue? Yeah. There's no indication that they're planning to increase the $268 per ton. Um, so I think that you know, is, is less of a concern. But to Stuart's point earlier, I think those Class B and Class C buildings are the ones that you know, are going to evaluate the penalty and either decide to continue with business as usual or they're going to eat the cost, right? Maybe they'll do some smaller energy efficiency type upgrades, especially if the paybacks are good. Um, luckily for those properties, you can in fact ride the curve out in terms of the, the greening of the grid, right? I think a substantial portion, and I don't remember the exact percentage off the top of my head, but a substantial portion of penalties simply go away if the state meets its decarbonization goals. And that's why the grid really is absolutely critical to the overall success of everybody, right? And so I was gonna make this point earlier, and I'm gonna make it now since I have the, the mic. Electrification of buildings, right, doesn't have to be an all or nothing, right? To Phil's point, you can do it part way, and you should evaluate the most reasonable and financially responsible way to get to where you can get to. Some buildings can get all the way, some buildings can't. There should definitely be provisions, right, for high-intensity users, or for buildings that just don't have the same resources as Class A commercial. Um, and so, you know, I think if we kind of take that view and we think about doing what we can where we can, and the grid greens the way that it's supposed to, the city is going to find itself in the state in, in, a, in a fairly good position, and I'm confident at least in the state-level efforts to try to make that happen, right? So when I look at everything across the board, I feel pretty good about the future. It's right now, I think, that feels really volatile. But I think it'll work itself out for class She's A great, class isn't C. she? That's really good. I'm so glad we got her for our panel. <laughs> we have time for one more question, and it's Nikki. Okay. So Nikki, introduce yourself and ask your question, please. I'm, I'm Nikki Hillier. I'm with Avis and Young. And my question is for Ryan and, and Phil. So I represent tenants. I represent tenants in really nice buildings like some of yours, and I represent tenants in more B-type buildings, and Phil, I know you've got, okay, I'll call them A minus B plus, your older buildings, okay? Mm. So my, they're A, they're A. I don't, I don't know what you're my, talking my about, there's no B. Is, <laughs> oh, B. My question is, is, how are you charging tenants back for this money that you're spending for retrofitting your buildings? That's a great question. I'm sorry, we've worked together, okay? So we think alike, okay? So, so, uh, so, so are I there, or do you, do you have passwords? Uh, not at this time. Yeah, uh, no. We do, do not like have passwords. I mean, they're coming up. <laughs> there, are, there are certain, certain language in the lease that allows us to put some of it on the operational mm -hmm. expense of the building over time, where, again, if there's a benefit or a payback to doing something, so if it's an energy measure that actually pays back over time, we can find a way to kind of recover some of that cost through the OPEX, but it's usually, we don't, we don't come right to the tenant and say, hey, you're paying for this. Um, but, but you are going to be putting some of it into your operating costs and trying to... Right, it, it kind of offsets that lower cost mm -hmm. in operating Pressure too, back. and there's also, you know, you get depreciation, you got a lot of other things that... that Well, that's again, the fine. That's, with the, with that's not necessarily the, the capital fine, expense for the improvements. Yeah, I was well, I was going to say, with yeah. respect to the fine, we are thinking about new leases. We can't do it under the old leases, but new leases, we are starting to come up with a way to put that in where it's a, it's a fair way of doing it. Again, you kind of like look at the yeah. common area charges and you, 
you know, you prorate it over the entire building and then or you allocate it across the square footage and then you look at that tenant square footage and that tenant submeter, add that on and come up with a limit for that tenant. And if they exceed the limit and the building gets a fine, then we look at a way to kind of charge them. It, there's got to be a way that the tenant has to pay for this too. It can't just be all on the landlord. But again, we're, we're working with the tenants to try and find the best ways to not pay the fine again. Drive this because they're not going to go into a building no. where they're going to take on the cost of that. I mean, if they have those options, and it depends on the it depends on the tenants. Um, and sorry, I'll just jump in here. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it, it comes full circle. Um, they can write all the laws they want and have all the fines they want, and it's your job to figure out how to uh, mitigate that for your company, and that becomes operating expense or fines to your tenants. But ultimately, the tenants are going to push this because they want ESG. If they're looking at two different buildings and one is more efficient than the other, and in one they're going to get, some of that's going to get put on them. If they're savvy clients with excellent representation mm -hmm. by Nikki Harriet of Avis and Young, by the way, um, <laughs> they're going to go in the building that's more efficient that doesn't put them at risk. So um, we're, you mentioned full circle. We're going to bring that circle to a close right now. The bar is going to be open. But I want to thank our excellent panelists here today. Um, really, I think Molly D. Um, from uh, at JBNB uh, was phenomenal, as was uh, Philip uh, um, uh, Skolaski um, from um, uh, our building uh, here at Durst. And thank you very much for hosting us. This is a phenomenal space and a very energy efficient building. So good place for us to hold this conversation. And Ryan, Mr. Sustainability, you did an excellent job. Thank you very much for participating. <laughs> I really appreciate it. And Stuart, as always, we love your poignant uh, debating skills, which come in handy to uh, look at both sides of an argument going forward. All of them will meet you outside in the cocktail hour. This has been a wonderful program. Thank you to the Public Policy Committee and uh, particularly to Margo. Margo has one more thing she wants. This would not happen today without Margo. Margo, you did a phenomenal job. Come on up. Thank you again to everyone. Um, just two quick corner uh, announcements. Um, the annual dinner is on May 12th, so tickets and tables are still available. Um, please uh, join us if you can. And we also will be hosting the Cornet uh, ERS, Eastern Regional Symposium, on June 13th and 14th. So if you haven't registered for that, please do so as well. And information's on the website. So thank you very much, and enjoy some more cocktails. Thank you, our speakers. Thank you.